0: All right, good afternoon, everyone. Did everybody have a good lunch? Yeah, got to stretch your legs a little bit, and now we're ready to buckle down for the next couple hours as we discuss pain therapeutics. So obviously this is an enormous topic. It could probably take a week in and of itself to cover all the bases, um, but fortunately there are a lot of lectures being presented this week that delve a little bit deeper into some of the topic areas that we'll be discussing. So I did my best to be concise and you know, really to stick to the need to know information from an overview on pain therapeutics perspective. So nothing to disclose early in my career. So by the end of this presentation, I'd like you all to be able to recall the various pharmacologic classes of medications used in pain management, to predict which patient populations would be at risk for adverse drug events based on patient-specific comorbidities and known medication effects, and to review the current guidelines related to the management of pain. So to start, what is pain? So over the years, there have been various definitions of pain. The International Association for the Study of Pain, or IASP, defines pain as the following. So an unpleasant sensory or emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage or described in terms of such damage. So basically, it's a warning sign that something is wrong. and essentially serves as a type of protective mechanism. A definition that I really like that's not included here on this slide is by Margot McCaffrey, who is a pioneer in pain management nursing. And she says that pain is whatever the experiencing person says it is, existing whenever and wherever the person says it does. So I think this definition is really important because it alludes to the subjective nature of pain. So, you know, as we know, there really are not any lab tests or imaging studies short of, you know, say a functional MRI that can really confirm or deny that a patient is experiencing pain. When it comes to the pathophysiology, pain can be broken down into nociceptive and neuropathic pain. Nociceptive pain arises from actual or threatened damage, so potential damage, to non neural tissue and is due to the activation of the ongoing activation of nociceptors and can further be broken down into visceral and somatic pain. Neuropathic pain, on the other hand, is caused by a lesion or disease of the somatosensory nervous system and can be either central or peripheral. In terms of duration and the time course, so kind of getting to the temporal aspect of pain, pain can be classified as being either acute or chronic. So acute pain typically occurs suddenly. So there's some sort of inciting event, whether it's an injury, an illness, surgery, but basically is usually pretty short-lived. It resolves as whatever that, um, that inciting insult resolves or heals. It serves a pretty useful biologic purpose. So it essentially is telling our bodies to take it easy while we heal so as to prevent further damage or injury. And so what do we think are some examples of acute pain? And we're all friends here, so feel free to shout them out. Anything you can think of yeah perfect a broken bone getting your wisdom teeth extracted um, stepping on a nail which my husband did a couple weekends ago and then had to go get a tetanus shot so that was fun chronic pain on the other hand is pain that lasts longer so it lasts beyond the expected duration of healing or it extends uh, lasts a duration longer than three months It tends to affect a person's activities of daily living, impacting their quality of life, and is frequently caused by inadequately treated acute pain. So it makes sense why we really need to do a good job on the front end so our patient's acute pain does not become chronic. Because unfortunately, unlike acute pain, with chronic pain, it really doesn't serve a useful biologic purpose. And unfortunately for many of our patients, there's really not an end in sight when it comes to chronic pain. So what are some examples of chronic pain? I know you guys know some. Perfect. Arthritis, I heard back surgery, and chronic low back pain. As we get into the discussion on some of the pain management guidelines later in the lecture, we'll be discussing the guidelines pertaining to chronic low back pain. So, yeah, that's a, a great example and a, a source of significant morbidity. All right so just to very briefly review the pain pathway so imagine you have some sort of injury say a hand injury i burned my hand on a curling iron a couple weekends ago so we'll use that as an example so what happens how do we feel pain after the injury occurs so the pain signal coming from the site of injury travels up to the brain which is ultimately where the perception of pain occurs. And the signal going to the brain is referred to as the ascending pathway. So to take a look at some of these steps, just very briefly, transduction is our first step, and that's where the nociceptors transduce that physical stimuli or injury into an electrical signal, so into an action potential. Conduction is where the action potential zips along the neuron, and this is where those pain fibers come into play. So we have our C fibers, which are small, unmyelinated, slow conducting fibers that transmit information about dull, poorly localized, diffuse, burning, aching types of pain, sensitive to mechanical, thermal, or chemical stimuli, and of note are more sensitive to opioids than its counterpart, the A delta fibers. So the A-delta fibers, in contrast, are large, myelinated, and fast-conducting fibers that transmit information about sharp, well-localized types of pain. Like I said, they're less sensitive to the opioids. And finally, we have the A-beta fibers, which are kind of the third wheel in this relationship. They, similar to the A-delta fibers, are... Uh, rapidly conducting fibers, but they're mainly transmitting information about non-noxious stimuli, so things like touch. But we know in situations like opioid-induced hyperalgesia, how these um, inputs that are normally perceived to be non-noxious and not painful, there can be a little bit of crosstalk going on, and all of a sudden the body is perceiving these normally non-painful inputs as painful our third step is transmission and I like to think of transmission sort of as the Olympic relay race the passing of the torch so it's where the nociceptor communicates with the dorsal horn of the spinal cord the spinal cord communicates with the brainstem and the thalamus and then the thalamus communicates with the cerebral cortex And finally we get to the perception of pain once we're in the brain. So this is the interaction between the various brain components that are responsible for things like sensation, the autonomic nervous system, motor response, emotion, stress, behavior, all of the things that, you know, constitute the response to that painful input. And finally, Uh, modulation, which depending on who you ask, for those of you who attended Jeopardy, we are discussing this earlier, but modulation is really the fifth step in the pain pathway and constitutes the descending pathway. So this is where um, basically it's important for a reduction in pain perception that allows us to maintain some level of functionality during the healing process. It's essentially an adjustment in pain intensity and then if you're more of a visual learner this is really just another way to look at the pain pathway so you can see transduction transmission modulation perception and then it you can see yeah there's modulation there as well so if we zoom in i just wanted to show you this graphic because i think it's kind of cool this zooms in on the first step which is transduction and it shows that inflammatory soup all of those things in the box titled noxious factors that really kick off this whole cascade and get the pain signal moving towards the brain. So it includes things like bradykinin, prostaglandins, um, histamine, leukotriene, substance P, serotonin. And the other kind of interesting thing to note is the serotonin piece. So in the ascending pathway, serotonin serves to get things cooking, right? It serves as... um, helps to trigger depolarization of the afferent neuron. But in modulation, or the descending pathway, serotonin works to inhibit further pain signals. So it's basically blocking the ones coming up. So just kind of a interesting thing to note there. So what's next? We have a patient that comes in with a pain complaint. This is really where the pain assessment comes into play. So the pain assessment forms the cornerstone of the therapeutic alliance between the healthcare provider and the patient. So, so often in healthcare, I think our patients feel like they're being rushed out the door or kind of being turfed from one provider to the next. And, you know, whether or not that's true, when they're coming in with a complaint of pain, this is sort of their chance to be in the spotlight. This is their time to tell their story, and from the information that's gained from that, the healthcare provider then works to characterize the pain, infer the etiology, and with that information to develop a treatment plan. So it's really important that we do a good job on the front end, and that really starts with selecting an appropriate pain assessment tool. So there are numerous validated pain assessment tools in the literature. Some are unidimensional, meaning they address only one component. So some of the more commonly used unidimensional scales are the numeric rating scale, which we're all familiar with. Um, the visual analog scale, Wong-Baker faces, and others are multidimensional, meaning you know, just as the name implies that they address multiple components of the patient's pain. The thing with multidimensional scales, while more information certainly is garnered from them, they do take more time to administer and require a little bit more training to administer. So that's sort of you know, the only downfall to them, but they do allow us to obtain more information. So with that said, how do we decide which pain assessment tool to use? Because this is certainly not a case of one size fits all. So for instance would the numeric rating scale be appropriate in a patient that was severely cognitively impaired? Probably not, right? So we need to take into account patient specific variables such as age and verbal and cognitive ability when we're selecting a pain assessment tool to use. And it's really important to also be consistent. So utilizing the same pain assessment tool across patient visits, you're better able to track the patient's progress. I think that goes without saying and that's assuming that you selected an appropriate pain assessment tool from the get-go. The numeric rating scale, I you know have a couple of things to say about that I think it's fine but I think you know so often as I'm going through the electronic medical record, you know reading up on a patient I'm about to go see, there will be one number. Or, you know, I'll be talking to the team. Well, the patient's pain is an eight. I need you to come see them. Uh, any more information? Like we discussed pain assessment earlier, the PQRSTA and various components that go into conducting a pain assessment. And they're like, I don't know, they, they said it was an eight. What more do you want from me? So I think we need to ask those additional clarifying questions that help us in our therapeutic decision-making process. So. Okay, it's an eight, that's their current pain score. What's the best your pain has been? What's the worst your pain has been? What does an average day look like for you in terms of pain severity? Because these certainly helps us and influences our decision-making process. And also, you know, this number from zero to 10 is really just a surrogate marker for what we ultimately really care about, which is the patient's functional status. So how is the patient's pain affecting the patient's daily life? What are the things that's preventing them from doing that they need to be doing, would like to be doing? um, And are they meeting their goal with regard to that? So always important to ask additional questions. And then of course, there is this three-level pain scale. Pain, excruciating pain, and stepping on a Lego which is validated by parents everywhere, and if you've ever stepped on a Lego, you will know exactly what I'm talking about. So, you know, at this point, we've done our thorough pain assessment. We think we've really nailed down our patient's pain. What tools do we have in our pain armamentarium that, you know, can help treat this patient's pain? So non-pharmacologic treatments really are not the focus of this lecture, but I do believe in an integrated approach to pain management, and I I think they're important because they have the ability to impact that perception step of the pain pathway. Fortunately, there are a lot of great lectures this week being presented on various topics related to non-pharm. Yesterday, there were three. There was one on, the psychology toolbox, one on music psychotherapy, and the electroceuticals one. So hopefully some of you had a chance to check those out. Um, If not, don't worry, there is more where that came from. So on Friday, there's a pretty cool one. Friday evening, it's called Exercise Your Demons, the benefits of exercise as a treatment for musculoskeletal pain. And then on Saturday, there are two that sounded pretty awesome too. In the morning, one on battlefield acupuncture protocol, Um, combined with microcurrent for stress and pain reduction, and then another one that afternoon on dry needling and trigger points. So if that tickles your fancy at all, be sure to check those out. I certainly don't know a lot about dry needling and trigger points, so I thought that one sounded interesting. Um, So what are potential non-pharmacologic options? So temperature therapy, heat and cold, massage, physical therapy, TENS or transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation units, more of an interventional approach would be spinal cord stimulator. And then our alternative therapies: So relaxation, guided imagery, music therapy, biofeedback, meditation, and self-hypnosis, acupuncture, acupressure, and distraction. So some apps that I've used um, with patients or even personally that are available in the app store that are pretty great, one is called Calm one is called headspace and another one is called breathe and headspace is probably the one that i'm the least familiar with but in preparing for this i was kind of scanning through the app and they have something that's pretty cool it's a 30 session kind of meditation guided imagery package specific to pain management so that's pretty awesome a lot of the other apps didn't have that so i was impressed And then there are also other packages that probably have some overlap with a lot of our patient population. So there was one on coping with cancer. There was another one on like preparing for surgery and you know, if you're nervous about surgery. So I thought that was pretty awesome. And it's something that patients can do on their own. So it's not something they have to purchase or go out and get, you know, it's something that is free in the app store and you know, they can do in their own time. And then the other thing to note is that these are all great options. You know, some patients may be more open to trying some of these than others, but a lot of the guidelines recently are kind of going gangbusters on the whole non-farm sitch. So that's fine amid the opioid crisis, we're looking to alternatives, but a lot of these things, especially, you know, interventionally, are not being covered very well by insurance. So, you know, if we have a patient with limited disposable income, they're probably unlikely to go out and spend their money on some of these things if insurance isn't kicking in and contributing at all. So hopefully, you know, as it is, as these approaches are being incorporated more and more into the guidelines, that, you know, coverage will hopefully change to meet that. So that brings us to the bread and butter of this presentation, which is a discussion on the various medication classes we have available to treat pain, and then later a discussion of some of the pain-related guidelines. So what do we have on the menu? We have acetaminophen, the nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, obviously the opioids, antidepressants, anticonvulsants, local anesthetics, skeletal muscle relaxants, capsaicin, and then a whole host of miscellaneous agents, some of which we'll discuss pretty briefly. Um, And really, this is is not an all-inclusive or exhaustive list, but I think it it covers the bases for our purposes. So we're going to start with the non-opioid analgesics, so that includes acetaminophen and the non-steroidals. Acetaminophen is also referred to as APAP or paracetamol and has analgesic and antipyretic properties. So for the money, what does, and by money I mean no money, what does APAP stand for? Any takers? And you can answer. I... Acetylsalicylic acid, no, I like where your head's at with the chemical name. So it really stands for N-acetyl paraaminophenol. But early in pharmacy school, one of our professors, uh, who shall remain nameless, tried to convince us that it stood for anti-pain, anti-pyretic, which I may or may not have believed for quite some time. It's neither here nor there. So in terms of its mechanism of action, there's still a lot, surprisingly, you know, considering this drug has been around for quite a while, that we still don't know. But what we do know is that it increases the pain threshold, it reduces the nitric oxide pathway, it selectively inhibits COX-2, it reduces prostaglandins in the central nervous system, thereby inhibiting endogenous pyrogens, and it interacts with the endocannabinoid system, which if you've attended any of the lectures on cannabis and cannabinoids, is certainly a hot topic these days. In terms of its adverse effects, acetaminophen is usually pretty well tolerated. And for that reason, and especially due to the fact that it doesn't need to be renally dose adjusted, it tends to be the preferred analgesic for mild to moderate pain in our elderly patients. But for reasons we'll discuss on the next slide, in 2014, the FDA mandated that all prescription combination products containing acetaminophen Cap the dose at 325 milligrams. So I'm sure many of you will remember, you know, the Percocet products and Vicodin ES, and you know, they included doses of acetaminophen up to like 750 milligrams. So, they, you know, the FDA made them cap that at 325 per dosing unit. And then, depending on who you ask, the recommended daily dosing can differ. So, according to the FDA, which ultimately is the one that we really care about. The max daily dose is four grams. Johnson & Johnson voluntarily reduced the total daily dose on their labeling to, say, three grams in sort of a a cover-your-butt kind of move, I think. Um, But really, we care about the FDA-recommended max daily dosing. Acetaminophen is found in more than 600 prescription and over-the-counter products, which is insane. So it's not surprising to learn that the biggest concern when it comes to acetaminophen, despite its, its relative safety profile, is the risk that comes with unintended overdose. So say you have a patient that's using Percocet for their severe arthritis pain, And then, you know, lo and behold, they get a sinus infection. So they go to their local pharmacy, they pick up some Tylenol cold and flu, and there we have our second acetaminophen product. And then their tummy's upset from taking so much medication and whatever, so that they take Alka-Seltzer flu, which also has acetaminophen in it. So you can see how it's, it's not that difficult if the patient is not reading the labels of these medications to exceed that recommended daily dose. And then they're in hot water because they can end up with acute liver failure. So to understand how that occurs, we need to just very briefly take a look at the metabolism of acetaminophen. So acetaminophen is metabolized through three separate pathways. Forty to sixty-five percent or so is through glucuronidation, another twenty to forty percent is through sulfation, and the remainder is through N hydroxylation, which is the step where things can hit the fan. So N hydroxylation forms this highly reactive intermediate called NAPKE, or N acetyl parabenzoquinonamine. So this highly reactive intermediate under normal circumstances this intermediate combines with glutathione and is excreted no harm no foul so the glutathione is kind of like pac-man it's going around chewing up all of the napkin. but in circumstances of large acetaminophen ingestion the pathways become saturated and there's no glutathione available to help um, excrete that toxic intermediate. So the napke concentrations increase and it results in hepatotoxicity. So you can see why we really need to educate our patients to always, always, always read the label of all medications that they're using, um, but certainly something like acetaminophen and looking out for that when the outcome can be so dire. So next we have the nonsteroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, or the NSAIDs. NSAIDs work by inhibiting the cyclooxygenase, or COX enzyme, to prevent the conversion of arachidonic acid to prostaglandins, prostacycline, and thromboxane, which, yes, are responsible for pain and inflammation, but also for a variety of beneficial effects, including gastroprotection and maintaining renal blood flow. So you can see how some of these adverse effects can come into play. So there are two COX isoforms that we are concerned with when it comes to the NSAID. So COX-1 is variably expressed in most tissues throughout the body and is considered a housekeeping enzyme. So it's involved in things like gastric cytoprotection, vascular homeostasis, platelet aggregation, and kidney function. Whereas COX-2 is expressed constitutively in tissues such as the brain, kidney, and the female reproductive system, and can also be expressed at other sites during times of inflammation. So you can see how that the COX-2 selective inhibitors and all of that comes into play as well. And you know, while the NSAIDs, you know, without argument are effective drugs, there are certain patient populations that generally should avoid or limit use of this class of drugs so patients who are on anticoagulants or corticosteroids or other medications that are going to significantly increase their risk of bleeding patients with renal dysfunction pregnant patients patients with heart failure the list goes on NSAIDs can also be classified based on their cox 2 on their cox selectivity but A really important point to remember is that all NSAIDs inhibit both COX-1 and COX-2. So what we're really talking about is the relative degree to which they inhibit these two isoforms. So the main takeaway from this slide is that the more COX-2 selective the drug, the more likely we are to see cardiovascular events while those that are more COX-1 selective are more likely to result in GI-related complications. Although, like I said, all all NSAIDs inhibit both COX-1 and COX-2 and therefore could potentially cause either cardiovascular or GI-related complications. So just to kind of briefly put this into perspective in a a visual way, when it comes to NSAID-related adverse effects, the big ones we're most concerned with are the gastrointestinal, cardiovascular, and renal complications. So this slide depicts the relative risk of serious complications for low to medium and then high-dose NSAIDs. And that yellow box at the bottom of the slide shows the cutoffs for that low to medium dosing, so to be considered in that category. So that includes Celecoxib 200 milligrams, ibuprofen 1200, naproxen 750, Ketorolac 30. um, So just to kind of help put that into perspective for you. So you can see that either way you cut it, NSAIDs increase the relative risk of all three complications. Um, and the increase is dose dependent, and it's pretty striking when it comes to GI risk. What about duration? Is, are these risks also um, dependent on duration of use? So here we have the risk of GI bleed perforation or ulcer, and that's in terms of the adjusted odds ratio versus time on the y-axis. So you can see that the risk is high, so highest, with actually 1 to 14 days of use. So with an adjusted odds ratio of 3.1, the, the risk is high, and it really remains high. So even at 91 to 120 days, the risk is still over double. So something to take into account there. I think a lot of our patients think that You know, these things will only occur if I'm on these for years and years and years. And sadly, you know, a lot of times there's not much of a warning when these adverse events do occur. This comes from a meta-analysis that was looking at GI complications from individual NSAIDs. And they looked at data from 1980 to 2011. The GI complications included ulceration, perforation, obstruction, and bleeding. And the authors concluded that when taken on a daily basis, all non-selective NSAIDs increase the risk of GI complication. The rub here is that this data was not stratified based on age or any other risk factors that are known to affect drug-related GI complications. Here we have, similar to two slides, this is the risk of first-time MI over time. So you can see here that the risk is the highest at 61 to 90 days of use, but not by much. So the odds ratio is 1.5 for 61 to 90 days, but 1.4 for one to 14. So you can see that the risk remains relatively consistent throughout the duration of use. And there's not a slide like this for uh, acute renal failure, But what the data shows there in looking at similar data is that the risk is more pronounced with prolonged use and approximately doubles after a year of use. So I included this. I think it's a a pretty good patient counseling point or clinical pearl. So aspirin's cardiovascular protection can be inhibited by the use of ibuprofen so doses of ibuprofen administered anywhere between two and 12 hours prior to aspirin administration demonstrated prevention of aspirin binding to platelets but doses given two hours after aspirin did not have this interaction so something to take into consideration there something to educate our patients about because if you think about the number of patients that are taking aspirin for either primary or secondary cardioprotective purposes, that is a lot of patients. And I can almost guarantee that most of them are not taking it this way if they're using an NSAID in addition. And, you know, the literature says that indomethacin and other NSAIDs might have the same interaction. I'm pretty sure they do. Um, There just aren't a lot of studies on it. Um, But the data is conflicting there. What about the topicals? So topically applied medications obviously are intended to reach the local tissue. So the thought process is that with less drug absorbed systemically, the less likely we are to see um, toxicity on a systemic level. So studies have shown that. So studies have shown that serum concentrations, they were looking at topical diclofenac, and they found that Um, serum concentrations of topical diclofenac were 0.4 to 2.2% that of the max concentration of oral diclofenac. So that is certainly something that's proven in the literature. Um, But the thing is, you know, I've heard, you know, residents and occasionally an attending say, you know, well, I don't want to use that. The patient has heart failure or whatever. They still have the black box warning. And that's true. They do still have the same black box warning that the oral NSAIDs have. But certainly with regard to a cardiovascular um, perspective, meta-analyses of the topical NSAIDs have not demonstrated a significant association between their use and an increased risk of cardiovascular adverse events. The one issue or kind of downside to the topical NSAIDs is that they can be pretty pricey. So cost can be a a rate-limiting factor here, Um, but if the patient is able to afford it or their insurance is able to cover it, they certainly are a good option, especially in patients where an NSAID would be helpful. They have some sort of inflammatory pain, but they also have risk factors where systemic administration is not really our best bet. Moving on to the corticosteroids. So the corticosteroids have several mechanisms of action when it comes to analgesic effect. So starting with prostaglandin inhibition, which makes them really useful in inflammatory pain. They also result in cell membrane stabilization, sodium channel blockade, and they inhibit osteoclastic activity, which makes them useful in bone pain. There are obviously a lot of different routes of administration available. Certainly they're available orally, they're also available parenterally, intravenously, IM and intra-articularly. So from a therapeutic standpoint, steroids can be a beautiful, beautiful thing, but due to their side effect profile, they're really not something that we want to continue forever. So, potential adverse effects of the corticosteroids include weight gain, fluid retention, changes in mood or thinking, insomnia, hyperglycemia, impaired wound healing, thinner, fragile skin, increased bleeding risk, muscle weakness, osteoporosis, bone fracture. So, for that reason, We really should use caution when using these medications in patients with diabetes, those with a psychiatric history, heart failure, if they're adrenally suppressed or immunocompromised. And finally, we get to the opioids. So we know that opioids work on multiple receptors within the CNS, which we'll see on the next slide here. For pure opioid agonists, things like morphine, oxycodone, hydromorphone, there's no ceiling dose for analgesia, but as the dose increases, obviously so does the the incidence of adverse effects. The CDC in 2016 and the VA and Department of Defense in 2017 published guidelines outlining the use of opioids in chronic pain, so we'll see those when we get to the guidelines discussion of the presentation. So as I just mentioned, the opioids work on multiple receptors in the CNS. So mu, kappa and delta are the ones that we really care about from a therapeutic standpoint and different subtypes of mu receptors exist and exert different clinical effects. So I was just told um, this, this week actually that there have, they have identified up to 25 different mu receptors. So those that we really have a lot of information on are mu one and two. Mu one is where the analgesic effect comes from and mu two is where the respiratory depression effect comes from. So we know we have agonists, partial agonists, and antagonists. Morphine, fentanyl, methadone, those are all opioid agonists. Buprenorphine, nalbuphine, and butorphanol are examples of partial agonists. And then we have naloxone and naltrexone, which are our antagonists. So it's important to be, you know, in any case to get a thorough medication history and complete a good med rec but we really need to be aware if our patients are taking some of these medications that contain an antagonist, but say they're using them for non-pain purposes, so they don't necessarily think they're important to include, Um, but things like naltrexone bupropion for weight loss or the naltrexone injectable suspension for alcohol dependence, these are important because if the patient were to say, get in a car accident or require surgery and come into the hospital acutely, it's going to require a lot of opioid to overcome the effects of the antagonist. And in doing so, you kind of cross your fingers and really hope that all of the opioid effect doesn't hit at one time, because if it does, then they're not gonna be concerned about their weight loss because they're not going to be with us anymore. So really important to get a solid medication history. Not going to discuss this in any great detail, but really this just gets to the importance in understanding the the different metabolic pathways of the opioids because things like pharmacogenomic and genetic differences, especially with regard to the SIP enzymes, can change the way these drugs are metabolized and shunt the metabolic pathway in one direction or another, which can either increase the effects of the drug and result in more toxicity, or make them less useful from a therapeutic standpoint. So just really important. And it's also important to know, you know, which of the metabolites are pharmacologically active, what is the potency relative to the parent drug or the active metabolite, and how that kind of comes into play. So we have multiple tools available to help us assess a patient's risk related to opioid use. So opioids accounted for 8.5% of medication related fatalities in 2015. So we know there are certain populations that are at greater risk for experiencing these adverse effects. Some of which include patients with sleep apnea and sleep disordered breathing, our pregnant patients, patients with hepatic or renal dysfunction, patients that are greater than 65 years of age, those with a mental health or substance use disorder, and those with a history of non-fatal overdose. Just a very brief review of naloxone. So it's available as an intranasal and intramuscular injection for ambulatory care and outpatient use, although we certainly use it on the inpatient side quite a bit too. Um, intranasally it's dosed at two and four milligram or comes as two and four milligram individual spray dosage forms and then intramuscularly available as 0.4 and two milligram single-dose autoinjectors recommended to be administered to anyone with suspected opioid overdose and many states have protocol state-driven protocols that allow for pharmacists to dispense naloxone without a prescription um, from a public health effort to combat the opioid epidemic and overdose. Discussing immediate release versus extended release opioids. So initial therapy, when we're initiating a patient on an opioid, we really should be sticking to immediate release formulations. Because if we give a patient who is opioid naive an extended release opioid, once we give it, we can't take it back. So, you know if things go wrong we're we're really not in a good place so we want the patient to be on a stable dose so extended release preparations are appropriate for patients that routinely use their immediate release preparation with relief of pain are not experiencing any adverse effects which have decreased their quality of life and are on a stable dose like i mentioned of the immediate release formulation for an appropriate period of time and then you know immediate release and extended release preparation should be reevaluated for safety and efficacy periodically whenever you're frequently reassessing your patients or per your state's guidelines so opioid rotation this is where we're converting a patient from one opioid to another and can occur for a variety of reasons um, You know, maybe there's a change in the patient's status where they're no longer able to swallow, and we need to convert them to a formulation that um, allows for that. You know, perhaps they're experiencing dose limiting side effects. So, there really are a number of circumstances where we would consider rotating a patient from one opioid to another. There is certainly a lot of evidence in cancer patients, which is where a lot of the data comes from, that rotation could be beneficial. And there are some retrospective trials that looked at opioid rotation in non-cancer pain, but like I said, the data is really rooted in the cancer patient population. So a a shameless plug, Uh, for my introducer over here is that the second edition of Demystifying Opioid Conversion Calculations is coming out at this meeting. And this is from the super cool laminated card that is also available at the University of Maryland's booth. So this is the equianalgesic conversion table, which as you can see, looks a little bit different from the one that we're used to. For instance, going from parenteral to oral morphine used to be 10 to 30, now is 10 to 25. So a little bit less. So and some changes with the hydromorphone were made to make the table work. Um, So just some differences there. Incomplete cross tolerance. So this results from the differences in pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics between opioids. So this is when you're going from one opioid to another opioid. The use of these dose conversion charts should be utilized to help us whenever we're transitioning a patient from one opioid to another. And accounting for incomplete cross-tolerance helps prevent acute acute overdose when switching to the new opioid because the, the patient is more sensitive, will be more sensitive to the new opioid. And, of course, extreme caution needs to be used when converting to and from methadone, which we'll discuss here shortly. So what are some of the steps in opioid conversion? What are some of the things we need to think about? So first, if the patient is not already receiving morphine, we'll want to convert their total daily dose of whatever opioid they are on to the equivalent oral morphine dose. We then want to account for that cross tolerance, that incomplete cross tolerance. So if the patient is already achieving adequate pain control, they're doing pretty good from that standpoint, but we're switching them from for another reason, we'll want to de- decrease the dose we calculated by 25 to 50%. Typically, I reduce by a third. That's just kind of the habit I've gotten into, but anywhere within this range is appropriate. If the patient is not experiencing good pain control, you don't have to reduce it at all. If they still have very severe pain, you can you know, go with the dose that you calculated. But if they have moderate pain, um, and, you know, it's working, but it could be better than you maybe shoot for the 25% reduction end of the range. So we'll convert to the new opioid and adjust dosing based on the available formulation, so whatever is commercially available. For instance, if you calculate a fentanyl patch strength of, you know, 42 milligrams, obviously that's not going to be possible, so you're going to... Round to whatever the the commercially available product that makes the most sense is and then monitor for pain control and adverse effects after the conversion and that goes without saying so converting to methadone so this is not for the faint of heart because methadone has such a complex pharmacokinetic profile So we know it has a variable half-life ranging between 7 to 59 hours, but, you know, really an average of about 24. There are numerous conversion charts that exist in the literature, and three or four of them are shown here. And so, you know, for that reason, we really, really need to use a a great degree, great deal of caution when converting to methadone. This is the flip side of that laminated card that contained the equianalgesic dosing card, the laminated card, but pertains to the use of methadone. And this is specific to advanced illness, but really, you know, pretty much applies universally. Um, so you can see here it's pretty straightforward. The table on the left is the total daily dose in terms of oral morphine equivalents, and then the conversion ratio um, from oral morphine equivalents to methadone. So it's really important and we'll see in the methadone guidelines later that because of the variable half-life, it takes anywhere from four to seven days to reach steady state. So for that reason, we really don't want to increase the dose any earlier than five to seven days. Um, And then not increasing the total daily oral methadone dose by more than five to 10 milligrams and when converting to oral methadone, to not exceed 30 to 40 milligrams of oral methadone per day as a starting dose, regardless of how much of the previous opioid that they were on. Moving on to the TCAs or the tricyclic antidepressants. These work by inhibiting norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake and inhibiting sodium channel action potentials. So the one thing kind of to note here, and that differs from you know the drug class that we'll be discussing next, the antidepressant effects and the, the neuropathic analgesic effects are are independent in terms of dosing. So higher dosing and longer treatment time is needed to achieve the antidepressant effect. We can get away with with a lower dose and a shorter time frame in terms of reaching that therapeutic benefit for neuropathic pain. And we know that due to its side effect profile, caution should be exercised in patients with cardiac arrhythmias and in our elderly patients. TCAs basically come in two flavors. So we have our tertiary amines and our secondary amines. The secondary amines are much better tolerated. So they're less sedating, there's less of a cardiovascular risk, less hypotension associated with their use, So from that standpoint are kind of a better bet. We know that we can see things like sedation, dry mouth, urinary retention, postural hypotension, and arrhythmias, or even seizures. Next up, we have the SNRIs, or or the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors, and they work, as their name implies, by inhibiting norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake. The dosing for these in contrast to the TCAs is generally higher for treating neuropathic pain compared to treating depression. So we kind of have to push the dose for these. Withdrawal syndromes can occur if the patients are abruptly discontinued from SNRIs. This can be pretty brutal. Um, They can experience anxiety, irritability, headache, paresthesias, nervousness. So we want to discourage them from doing that and certainly institute a taper if we're trying to get them off of an SNRI. And then in patients with liver dysfunction, uncontrolled hypertension, or moderate cardiovascular disease, certainly to use caution with the SNRIs. What about the SSRIs, or the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors? So there was a Cochrane review in 2007 that reviewed literature on, on several different classes. So the TCAs, the SSRIs, and the SNRIs. The TCAs and venlafaxine had data that supported their use in neuropathic pain, which makes sense, we use those all the time. But there was limited evidence to suggest SSRIs are effective in managing neuropathic pain. They were better tolerated than the TCAs, which is probably also not surprising, um, related to their side effect profile. But this, this study included 36 trials that reviewed SSRIs in the management of chronic pain. They looked at nine different SSRIs, including citalopram and fluoxetine. 25 of the studies reported a significant effect regarding chronic pain outcomes, but only two of those trials had a low risk of bias, so take that with a grain of salt. And then SSRIs, you know, they concluded that they may have some effect on chronic pain, but obviously more, you know, I'm not buying it just yet. The more robust clinical trials and data is needed in order to make that recommendation for their use in chronic pain. The anticonvulsants. So the primary anticonvulsants that we use in the field of pain management work on the calcium channels. So these are the gabapentinoids, gabapentin and pregabalin. Other anticonvulsants have had mixed results regarding neuropathic pain, um, and carbamazepine is one that we commonly see for trigeminal neuralgia. Um, If you look at the number needed to treat, so thinking about the things we commonly use, the TCAs and the gabapentinoids. So the number needed to treat for gabapentin and neuropathic pain is four to five, whereas the number needed to treat for the TCAs in neuropathic pain is around three. So the thing, you know, the gabapentinoids are not hepatically metabolized. There's really not any drug-drug interactions that we're concerned with, and their side effects are usually more tolerable than the TCAs. Um, but we need to remember that these drugs do need to be titrated. We need to push the dose to achieve the maximum therapeutic benefit while sort of you know, weighing the, the side effects that the patient is experiencing. Um, pregabalin has the benefit of being a little bit easier to titrate. You can push the dose a little bit faster than you can gabapentin, uh, but it also tends to cost a little bit more. So, you know, kind of the downside there. For gabapentin and pregabalin only, you know, this literature was looking at all of the anticonvulsants. So found it had reasonably good evidence for efficacy in painful diabetic neuropathy and postherpetic neuralgia, little evidence and therefore no judgment could be made about the use of alproic acid. There was low quality evidence due to biases in the study for carbamazepine and reasonable quality evidence exists that there is little to no effect for uh, lamotrogen, oxcarbazepine, and topiramate. Local anesthetics work through membrane stabilization of those sodium channels, and that prevents the depolarization and signal transduction that we discussed earlier in the pain pathway slide. So local anesthetics are used acutely quite frequently, especially from a procedural standpoint. We have various modes of administration: topicals, creams, ointment, patch, gel, etc. Um, intradermal injection, IV. Um, so you know, really runs the gamut there. And the patches are indicated for the management of postherpetic neuralgia, although we see it used off-label all the time for other types of neuropathic pain. One area that was pretty remarkable that I saw used was for phantom limb pain. So at post amputation, once the it was a below knee amputation, once it had healed, applying the lidocaine patch directly to the stump, and it worked like magic. So you know, one of our colleagues was telling me this, and I was like, I don't know, I don't know if that's going to work. And I swear to you, it was a miracle. So just one area that I've seen it work. That's that's pretty remarkable. There are ester and amide subfamilies of the local anesthetics. So the esters include things like procaine, whereas lidocaine and bup are amides. And the why this is important is that the allergies are possible to the ester types. And that's secondary to this metabolic byproduct called Paba. So the amide type local anesthetics don't metabolize to this Paba moiety. And then there are adverse effects that can affect uh, the CNS, cardiovascular system, and hematologic systems of um, due to local anesthetics. Next, we have our skeletal muscle relaxants. So there are a ton of different medications that are sort of lumped into this general category of skeletal muscle relaxants. There are certain agents that are approved for muscle spasticity, so things like Baclofen through its activity on GABA, toxanidine through its activity on the alpha-2 receptor, and then there are a whole lot of others, cyclobenzaprine or Flexeril, um, chrysoprodol or Soma, and these really stand out for reasons other than their muscle relaxant activity, and I use that loosely. So cyclobenzaprine, for instance, for its anticholinergic activity, um, Carisoprodol and Miprobamate for their potential of abuse. Um, you know, I've, I see these added all the time. And the thing is they're really intended for short duration of use. They're not meant to be continued forever. And I see patients, they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I got that for, you know, when I pulled my back out five years ago and my doctor just continued me on it. I'm like, and are you taking it? They're like, oh, yeah, I thought I was supposed to. I'm like, well, how's your back? They're like, oh, yeah, it's totally fine. It resolved, uh, you know, a couple weeks later. I'm like, oh, my God. So um, apparently trying to set the mood here. I'm not really sure what uh, is going on. All right. And then the other one that's not included here are the benzodiazepines. I see those used a lot uh, in the post-op setting for things like um, spinal surgeries it's used a ton cervical surgeries Um, but again due to the side effects and the risk of abuse again not something we should be continuing indefinitely capsaicin works by stimulating the trip v1 receptor which works to deplete substance p release from the periphery and as we saw on that second slide when we were discussing the pain pathway Substance P is one of those substances in the inflammatory soup, so to speak, that kind of gets things moving and helps to trigger depolarization. Indications for capsaicin include neuropathic pain associated with post-herpetic neuralgia, arthritis, and musculoskeletal pain. We have multiple different concentrations available over-the-counter and multiple formulations, creams, patches, there's a roll-on applicator. Um, So really, you know, whatever the patient likes, they're all equally efficacious. And there is the 8% prescription patch called Cutenza which must be administered under the direct supervision of a healthcare provider, and the patient must be medicated prior to receiving it because it is so dang pain- painful. So yes, it is working to relieve the pain, but you have to receive an analgesic prior to it being administered. So I always found that one pretty interesting. And then, obviously, because it's usually applied topically, it results in local irritation, uh, burning, stinging, redness, that kind of thing. And as I mentioned earlier, there are a whole host of miscellaneous agents kind of lumped into this category that we're not going to spend a lot of time on um, just because we are restricted from a time standpoint. So ketamine is an NMDA receptor antagonist and is a great option for managing opioid-induced hyperalgesia. Ziconotide is a synthetic conopeptide that binds to the N-type calcium channels in those primary afferent neurons. Botulinum toxin A, or Botox, has an indication for migraine, although not first-line therapy. And then the hot topic as of late, the cannabinoids and cannabis. So we're not going to go into this. Um, It's here mostly for your reference, and of course these slides will be available after the session. So this table to orient you breaks it down by the type of pain, so nociceptive somatic, nociceptive visceral, and neuropathic pain. And in the middle column is how patients might describe this type of pain and examples. So for instance, nociceptive visceral, Patients might describe it as deep squeezing, cramping types of pain. And examples of this are pancreatic cancer, intraperitoneal mets, intestinal obstruction. And we know that this type of pain responds pretty well to primary analgesics such as the opioids and possibly to non-opioids. So this is really just here for your reference, but is an attempt to kind of pull it all together for you. This is kind of a random topic thrown here in the middle, but I think it's important before we get to the pain management guidelines. So the various effects on pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics that can make us either more responsive or less responsive to certain drugs. So the effects of aging. Advanced age leads to changes that can impact pharmacokinetics, including a decrease in total body water and lean muscle mass and increased adipose tissue. Whereas the pharmacodynamic changes we can see include increased risk of sedation from things like CNS depressants, so opioids and benzodiazepines. There can also be an effect of gender on pharmacokinetics. there are multiple pharmacokinetic differences between sexes, so males have an increased BMI in total body water, generally speaking, whereas females have increased adipose tissue. I think we got the shorter end of the stick here, ladies. Um, and then pregnancy, of course, can alter that balance even further. And then metabolism can also be affected by gender. So we know that there's greater activity of CYP1A and UDP transferase in males, whereas there's greater activity of CYP2D6 and CYP3A in females. So just something to take into consideration there. There can also be ethnicity and genetic effects on pharmacokinetics. So certain ethnic groups have Uh, Vary in the efficacy of their drug metabolizing enzymes and drug transporter proteins that could potentially result in pharmacokinetic variability. So four races that have been identified as having various allelic frequencies include Asian, African, Middle Eastern, and European. And then patients sensitive to multiple medications, so in a way that you might not expect, might benefit from pharmacogenetic and pharmacogenomic testing. So this is just a further example of that so we can have poor metabolizers intermediate extensive and ultra rapid metabolizers so these are just some examples so 1a could be amitriptyline or cyclobenzaprine 2d6 could affect tramadol oxycodone duloxetine and 3a for things like benlifaxine buprenorphine and fentanyl All right, so getting into the second half, that's me, I'm your guide, that little clip art right there. So as we work our way through some of these guidelines. So the next three slides, and I alluded to this earlier, discuss the 2017 American College of Physicians clinical practice guidelines on non-invasive treatment for acute, subacute, and chronic low back pain. So this slide includes the recommendations that pertain to acute or subacute low back pain. So acetaminophen, they found no difference compared to placebo at four weeks. For NSAIDs and skeletal muscle relaxants, they found a small improvement in short-term pain control when compared to placebo. Um, But for skeletal muscle relaxants, there were inconsistent findings when they looked at adding a skeletal muscle relaxant to an NSAID compared to an NSAID alone. So while there was a small improvement shown, you know, how, how much is kind of left up for debate. And then corticosteroids, they found no difference in pain or function after a single intramuscular injection or after a five-day course of oral steroids compared to placebo. So this is for acute or subacute low back pain. So based on that, the following recommendation was made. They said that, given that most patients with acute or subacute low back pain tend, you know, it's kind of self-limited. They tend to improve over time regardless of treatment. They recommend select non-pharmacologic treatment with superficial heat, which had moderate quality evidence. And then they mentioned massage, acupuncture, or spinal manipulation, which they said had low quality evidence. If pharmacologic treatment is desired, NSAIDs or skeletal muscle relaxants should be used. So they were the two that got the green light and had moderate quality evidence. Moving on to chronic low back pain, NSAIDs were shown to have small to moderate evidence of improvements in pain, but no difference in functionality compared to placebo. Opioids had moderate evidence of improvement in pain for strong opioids compared to placebo, and there was no difference between immediate release and extended release, which makes sense. Um, And then skeletal muscle relaxants had insufficient evidence regarding their use, but really no difference in any outcome when when compared to placebo. The antidepressants, there was no difference between the tricyclics or for most SNRIs compared to placebo when looking at function. But duloxetine was was the one that was associated with a small improvement in pain intensity and function. So something to remember there. And then there was no sufficient evidence for chronic low back pain for acetaminophen, corticosteroids, or anticonvulsants with regard to pain relief or an improvement in functional status. These next three slides discuss the 2016 American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO's, clinical practice guidelines on the management of chronic pain in adult cancer survivors. So obviously, due to advancements in the diagnosis and treatment, we have approximately 14 million people living in the United States with a history of cancer. Of those patients, about two thirds are surviving at least five years from their diagnosis. And unfortunately, chronic pain is a significant and serious negative consequence of surviving cancer. So it can be, you know, include chronic pain syndromes that result from chemo or radiation, um, possibly from surgery or hormonal therapy. So, you know, certainly this is a big deal, and unfortunately, these patients get the short end of the stick because, you know, while they were undergoing active treatment, they were being managed by their oncologist who was writing their prescriptions. But then, if they have the good fortune to be in remission and they're not undergoing active treatment, A lot of the oncologists are saying, well, I don't need to see you as frequently as I used to because you're in remission, so really your primary care doctor should be managing your pain. Well, the primary care doctor is like, "Mm, thanks but no thanks. You really need to see a pain management specialist. And we know that there is a relative lack of pain management specialists and they're swamped. It's very hard to get in to see them. So these patients are, are frequently, you know, kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. So these guidelines say that clinicians can prescribe the following systemic non-opioid analgesics to relieve chronic pain or improve function in cancer survivors, you know, pending there are no contraindications or drug-drug interactions. So they include NSAIDs, acetaminophen, antidepressants, specifically duloxetine, anticonvulsants, which include gabapentin and pregabalin. They go on to say that clinicians can prescribe topicals, but corticosteroids are not recommended for long-term use solely to relieve chronic pain due to their side effect profile. And then clinicians should assess the risk of adverse effects over time of these various pharmacologic therapies used for pain management. Says that they should follow their state's regulations pertaining to medical cannabis or cannabinoids, and they can prescribe a trial of opioids in carefully selected patients who do not respond to more conservative management and who continue to experience you know, significant pain-related distress or functional impairment. So really reserving opioids for patients that are not responding to anything else. Then we have the CDC guidelines, which I'm sure you are all intimately familiar with at this point in time. Um, but as I was mentioning earlier, the, the stressing of non-pharmacologic management is certainly something the CDC guidelines did. So saying that non farm and non-opioids are preferred for chronic pain and to consider opioids only when the benefits outweigh the risk. The second bullet, you know, I I have my qualms with the CDC guidelines, but the second bullet really makes a lot of sense to me. So before initiating opioid therapy, clinicians should help establish realistic treatment goals for pain and function and consider how to discontinue opioids if those risks are no longer, or the benefits are no longer outweighing the risks. So this I think is really important. We need to have a frank conversation with our patient saying, you know, if they have, five you know kinds of cancer or you know, have undergone five different back surgeries for chronic low back pain. Are we going to be able to get their pain to a zero on that zero to 10 scale? No, probably not. Um, but really setting realistic goals in terms of function and things they would like to be able to doing so that we're able to better track our progress, I think is an important discussion to have and then obviously reassessing risks and benefits with the patient throughout their um, duration on opioid therapy. When starting patients on opioids, immediate release formulation should be prescribed. We discussed that earlier. And then methadone and transdermal fentanyl, they say should not be considered at this point in treatment. When starting opioids, clinicians should prescribe the lowest effective dose. They say that we should be reassessing the evidence of benefit and compare that to the risk. So the risk-benefit ratio, if we're increasing beyond 50 morphine milligram equivalents and then avoiding increasing or carefully justifying, so this is getting at the documentation piece, if we make the decision to titrate the patient uh, above 90 morphine milligram equivalents. When opioids are prescribed for acute pain, use the lowest dose for the shortest period of time, which they say should rarely exceed seven days. I think this is certainly something that is translated to practice, um, especially patients that are being seen in the emergency room or um, you know, urgent care settings, or if they're there for an acute stay in the hospital, rarely do I see more than seven days re-evaluating the patient at one to four weeks after initiating an opioid or after making any kind of dose change and then every three months once the patient's stabilized and if those risks at any point outweigh the benefit, tapering down and potentially discontinuing the opioid in favor of other treatment modalities. Before initiating and periodically thereafter, you know, I think not to beat a dead horse, but assessing those risk factors for opioid related harms. And like I said, there are multiple risk assessment tools out there to aid you in doing this. It's important to review your state's prescription drug monitoring program at initiation and then periodically at least every three months and avoid dismissing patients based solely on the PDMP results. So I think this is somewhere, I think that I have seen this done, unfortunately, but I think, you know, if we have the case of a patient that's doctor shopping, we need to do a little bit of soul searching and have a frank conversation with our patient. Do they have a substance use disorder? If so, can we help refer them to treatment? If they're doing that because their pain is uncontrolled, then, you know, that's our responsibility. We need to, you know, make some changes to hopefully get their pain under better control. Um, But really opening the lines of communication with our patient uh, and not just sending them out the door and refusing to manage their care. This goes for monitoring urine drug testing as well. So monitoring before and periodically throughout long-term opioid therapy and just as was the case with the PDMP results, not automatically dismissing them based solely on their urine drug test results. There are a lot, a lot, a lot of caveats when it comes to urine drug testing in terms of weird things you would never think of showing up positive, um, certain metabolites. So, we really need to know, you know, at your practice site, which type of assay you're using and how to interpret those results, what those metabolites mean. Um, so, just kind of knowing what you're looking for. And then based on the patient's you know, current medication list, what to, or did they take something over the counter that might have showed up funny on their drug test? So again, opening those lines of communication with your patient to sort of tease out and get to the bottom of aberrant results. Clinicians should avoid prescribing pain medication and benzos whenever possible due to the increased risk of respiratory depression and then offering or arranging access for patients with substance use disorders to methadone or buprenorphine combined with behavioral therapy, so medication assisted therapy there. These are the VA guidelines on chronic opioids and chronic pain. fairly consistent with the CDC guidelines. So again, they're recommending alternatives to opioid therapy, such as self-management strategies and other non-pharmacologic treatment. But when you have severe chronic pain, you know, sitting in the circle and holding hands and singing kumbaya is probably not going to manage your pain alone. So they do go into you know other therapies. so when pharmacologic therapies are used they recommend non-opioids over opioids they recommend against initiation of long-term opioid therapy for chronic pain and if you're prescribing opioids for a patient with chronic pain they recommend a short duration of use which is doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me because if you think when we discussed the difference between acute and chronic pain, we said that, you know, for chronic pain, unfortunately, a lot of times there's no end in sight. It's not like acute pain that's going to resolve after that acute insult heals, resolves, you know, whatever. So the short duration of opioid therapy is interesting because it's like, here's what you're missing. Let's give you just a sprinkle of oxycodone, make you feel better for a day or two, and then we're going to take it away. So I'm not sure I agree with that so much, but I do agree that if we're going to continue long-term opioid therapy, we need to frequently reassess whether it's still providing benefit and and limit it if at all possible. For patients that are currently on long-term opioid therapy, ongoing risk mitigation strategies should be employed. Of course, assessing for opioid use disorder and considering tapering when those risks outweigh the benefits. And then again, of course, they're going to recommend against long-term opioid therapy for patients with an untreated substance use disorder. It's very, very important that that gets taken care of. They recommend against the use, the concurrent use of benzos and opioids for reasons we just discussed. They recommend against long-term opioid therapy for our younger patients, so 30 years of age or less, secondary to the higher risk of opioid use disorder and the risk of overdose. They recommend implementing risk mitigation strategies, having an informed consent conversation, covering all of the risks and benefits, treatment alternatives, making sure that the patient and provider are on the same page. And then specific to the VA guidelines, they recommend assessing suicide risk when considering initiating or continuing long-term opioid therapy, and of course, intervening when necessary. They recommend evaluating the benefits of continuing opioid therapy and the risk of those opioid related adverse effects at least every three months. And if prescribing them, prescribing the lowest possible dose for the shortest period of time. And as opioid dose and therefore risk increases, they recommend more frequent monitoring. They too recommend against opioid doses over 90 milligram morphine equivalents Uh, for treating chronic pain. They recommend against prescribing long actings for acute pain, which makes sense. They also recommend against them for as needed medications, which hopefully we wouldn't be doing anyway, or on initiation of long-term opioid therapy. And then tapering or reducing the dose or discontinuing when the risks outweigh the benefits. They recommend individualized opioid tapering because clearly this is not one size fits all and they recommend interdisciplinary care for patients presenting with high-risk or aberrant drug behaviors. They recommend offering medication-assisted treatment just as the CDC guidelines did. And then for acute pain, of course, they're recommending alternatives to opioids for moderate, mild to moderate pain. We wouldn't be using opioids for mild pain, hopefully, in the first place. Um, and suggest the use of multimodal pain care, including non-opioids as indicated when opioids are used. And they're saying if you're going to send a patient home with opioids for acute pain purposes, prescribing you know the shortest uh, duration possible and reassessing no later than three to five days after initiation to determine if you need to adjust therapy or whether continuing therapies is even warranted. So in April 2017 the Federation of State Medical Boards released guidelines for the chronic use of opioid analgesics and these guidelines are largely consistent with the CDC guidelines and address, you know, very similar areas. So patient evaluation and risk stratification Things like the use of informed consent and treatment agreements, initiating, monitoring, and adapting an opioid trial, drug testing, when to refer patients or when you need to call in a specialist uh, referral, discontinuing. They have a lot of information on documentation. So everything that falls under that category. And then of course, compliance with controlled substance laws and regulations. This, in December 2016, the European Pain Federation released this position paper on appropriate opioid use in chronic pain management. This was largely targeted to primary care physicians and non-pain management specialists, and they included this step-by-step guide to the initiation of opioid analgesia that I included here for your reference. These recommendations came from the most recent revision of the Special Interest Group on Neuropathic Pain or NUPSIG's recommendations for the pharmacotherapy of neuropathic pain. These were based on the results of a systematic review and meta-analysis and were published in The Lancet Neurology in 2015. So to orient you to this table, All of the medications shown here in the far left column have a strong recommendation for use and are deemed first line in neuropathic pain in adults according to the NUPSIG recommendations. The middle column shows the total daily dose and dosing regimen for each of these agents. So you can see we have both the immediate and extended release formulations of gabapentin, pregabalin, our SNRIs, duloxetine and venlafaxine, and then the tricyclic antidepressants. So the, the agents that had weak recommendations for use and were considered uh, or proposed as second line agents included lidocaine patches, that high concentration cutenza patch um, and Tramadol. And then weak recommendation for use and proposed as third line include strong opioids and Botox. Then in 2017, the American Diabetes Association published a position statement on diabetic neuropathy. So they said to consider either pregabalin or duloxetine as the initial approach in the symptomatic treatment of diabetic neuropathy. And though used off-label, the tricyclics are also effective for neuropathic pain, but should be used with a relative degree of caution due to their side effect profile. They go on to say that gabapentin can also be used as an as an initial approach, um, taking into account the patient's socioeconomic status, comorbidities, drug interactions, et cetera. So we know that especially, you know, at least for the immediate release gabapentin, it can be significantly cheaper than some of the alternatives. So if that's something that is important, um, then you know, or insurance status is limited or whatever it may be, then gabapentin is certainly a good option given the risks of addiction and other complications, the use of opioids, and they specifically state, including the use of tepentadol or Tramadol is not recommended as first or second line agents for treating the pain associated with diabetic neuropathy. Moving on to methadone. So your favorite topic, methadone. Not even paying attention. No, you're not, okay. So, patients with intermittent chronic pain requiring only as needed opioids, so PRN use of opioids, or who have a history of medication noncompliance are not good candidates for methadone. So, this comes from the recommended prescriber practices from the American Academy of Pain Medicine that was published back in July of 2016. So, this is who they're saying is really not a good candidate for methadone from the get go. Can you think of any other patients that might not be a good candidate for methadone? Feel free to shout them out. Okay, I heard geriatric patients. Okay, some cardiac comorbidities. Sleep apnea. Sleep apnea, okay, that's a good one. That's included here as well. So for me, working in hospice and palliative medicine, the one I, you know, one that we encounter pretty frequently is patients obviously with a limited prognosis. So if the prognosis is very short, so meaning less than a week, methadone is not a good choice because we're not going to reach steady state. So, you know, we can kind of cross them off the list. If the patient lives alone, if they have poor cognitive functioning and they would be the ones administering their medication, if they have a lack of a reliable caregiver, um, possibly, if you know you're suspecting current drug abuse or a substance use disorder, or the patient is otherwise unreliable, so a history of non adherence, then methadone is really not the drug for them. If they have unstable or severe liver failure, if they're on multiple interacting medications, or there are clinical factors where you would deem them to be at an elevated cardiovascular uh, risk in terms of arrhythmia, then they would not be a good uh, candidate for methadone. So it's recommended that we initiate therapy at a low dose, so no more than 15 milligrams per day in divided doses, although usually we're even more conservative than that. So especially in our frail or elderly patients, we're talking more like 7.5 milligrams per day, so 2.5 Q8 or even 2.5 Q12, um, but certainly no more than 15 milligrams per day. Dosage should be increased no more frequently than once per week, and that's you know because it takes four to seven days at least to reach steady state. And then assessing the patient's risk for QTC prolongation and reassessing the QTC after any dose changes. If at any point the patient's QTC exceeds 470 in men or 480 in women, that's when we're going to talk about decreasing the dose or potentially discontinuing methadone and rotating them to a different opioid. So someone had mentioned sleep disordered breathing. So yep, that's one on here. And then if the patient is also non-compliant with their respiratory assistive devices. We can evaluate other respiratory depressant risk factors related to methadone. So, for instance, if the patient is also on a benzodiazepine, communicating to the patient the importance of not using methadone more often than prescribed, even if their pain is uncontrolled. And I cannot stress this enough. This is the come-to-Jesus conversation prior to initiating methadone. You have to say, this is not like your morphine. This is not like your oxycodone. And really explain, putting the fear of God in them. And I am not one to try and scare the bejesus out of my patients. But if at any point I wanted to, this is where I would. So they need to really understand and kind of pay it the respect that it deserves when they're starting methadone. And getting their caregivers involved or family members is equally as important because they're going to be playing a role in helping to assess them in that initial um, initiation phase or titration. Then use of IR opioids during methadone titration if the initial dose of methadone isn't adequate to manage the pain. So especially, you know, if for some reason we're being very conservative with our initial dosing, we can be a little bit more aggressive with our breakthrough dosing to kind of cover them until we reach steady state. These guidelines come from the Clinical Practice Guideline on the Management of Postoperative Pain, which was a collaborative effort by the American Pain Society, the American Society of Regional Anesthesia and Pain Medicine, and the American Society of Anesthesiologists. So they state that pre-operative and perioperative patient and caregiver education regarding postoperative pain management planning is essential. So I think this is a really, really good point. This is that managing expectations piece. So they talk about things like showing the patients videos, discussing the plan, the game plan for pain management, um, and what you know what the patient should expect. So I think that is really really important. Explaining the fact that again, you know, they just had a thoracotomy or a, an invasive pelvic surgery, their pain is not likely to get to a zero on that zero to ten scale. Assessing and reassessing postoperative pain because we know that it changes so frequently. And then they mentioned the use of multimodal therapy. So physical modalities that they mentioned include use of TENS TENS units, which was the only one that had a weak recommendation with the others having insufficient evidence. So those included acupuncture, massage, cold therapy with and without compression, localized heat, warm insufflation, continuous passive motion, and immobilization are bracing. All of those had insufficient evidence per these guidelines, with TENS unit being recommended as a weak recommendation. They also mentioned cognitive behavioral therapy, so things like guided imagery, relaxation, music therapy, and intraoperative positive suggestions, which I find kind of hilarious in a sense. I was just visualizing it. So basically it's where you whisper sweet nothings to the patient while they're under anesthesia, like you can do it. Your post-op pain is going to be well-managed. I'm like, where is the data on this? I have not seen it yet, but I like it. Other things they mentioned systemic pharmacologic therapy, you know, things like peripheral, peripheral regional anesthesia or axial therapy, policies and procedures and then how to transition these patients successfully to outpatient care. And they have this really awesome chart that I included a screenshot here, just so you can kind of see what it entails. And then of course you can pull the reference or I can send it to you um, if you're more interested. So what it, it breaks down the multimodal options based on the type of surgery that the patient had. So for instance, the first row is if the patient had a thoracotomy. Then they look at the second column is systemic pharmacologic therapy. So they mention opioids, NSAIDs, acetaminophen, gabapentin or pregabalin, IV ketamine. Um, then there's a column for local, I can't even read this, it's so small, local intra-articular or topical techniques, regional anesthesia techniques, neuraxial anesthetic techniques, and then non farm therapy. So they have this for like every possible surgery that the patient could have undergone and these various um, options that you have. Osteoarthritis of the hip. So this comes from the clinical practice guidelines developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. So they state that there's moderate strength evidence supporting use of risk assessment tools, Uh, Moderate strength evidence supporting that obese patients with symptomatic hip osteoarthritis when compared to non-obese patients can potentially have lower absolute outcome scores, but a similar level of patient satisfaction and relative improvement in pain and function. There's strong evidence that NSAIDs improve short-term pain function or both. Moderate strength evidence that does not support the use of glucosamine sulfate. Strong evidence supporting the use of intraarticular corticosteroids um, in the short term. And strong evidence not supporting the use of intraarticular hyaluronic acid. Strong evidence supporting physical therapy And then moderate evidence supporting the use of post-op physical therapy because of their potential to improve early function to a greater extent than no physical therapy. And then these guidelines are for osteoarthritis of the knee and were also developed by the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. So there are some differences here, like in terms of the evidence and the strength of the recommendations versus hip osteoarthritis. So they recommend that patients with symptomatic osteoarthritis of the knee participate in self-management programs. So this is things like uh, strength training, low impact aerobic exercise, engaging in physical activity. Um, They suggest weight loss in patients with symptomatic osteoarthritis and a BMI greater than or equal to 25. And they state they cannot recommend using acupuncture in patients with symptomatic osteoarthritis due to a lack of evidence. They go on to state that they also cannot recommend using glucosamine and chondroitin. They do recommend oral or topical NSAIDs or tramadol and are unable to recommend either for or against acetaminophen, opioids, or pain patches with symptomatic arthritis. They state they are unable to recommend for or against the use of intra-articular corticosteroids. So there's a difference between uh, the hip and knee guidelines and also state that they can't recommend using hyaluronic acid. Acute pain, these are from, they were published in the American Family Physician Journal back I think in 2013. So they state that in managing acute pain, acetaminophen is considered first line due to its overall safety profile and relative low cost. And said, while they have a similar analgesic activity, the decision should be made on a patient by patient basis due to its side effect profile. They state that opioid combination should be considered for patients in which acetaminophen or the NSAIDs, so the non-opioid analgesics just didn't cut it, but you had tried them. And then opioids alone, so not the combination products like a Percocet or Vicodin, should be reserved for patients not experiencing appropriate pain control with the opioid combination products. So where you need to push the dose, but that acetaminophen component is, is limiting you. And this is just a summary of the key recommendations that's here for your reference. And with that, we have a couple of minutes left. How many? About five minutes or so. We have four cases, so we'll just kind of talk through these cases. And if we run out of time, that's fine, because you'll have these slides for your reference after the session. So our first case is a 38-year-old male with chronic low back pain from a traumatic injury that was sustained five years ago. He had a significant GI bleed six months ago from the overuse of NSAIDs, requiring multiple blood transfusions. His current medications include pregabalin, 150 milligrams twice daily, oxycodone immediate release, 30 milligrams every six hours as needed, and he's using an average of three doses per day. And then fentanyl, 100 microgram patches, he's using two of those and changing them every 48 hours. His, (laughs) yeah, exactly. His pain is a 6 out of 10, which is his baseline, but today his complaint is really not about the pain. He's complaining about an overall lack of energy, feelings of hopelessness, and a decrease in social activities from his norm. So what would be the best option based on the current guidelines? So would we initiate something like a skeletal muscle relaxant, so cyclobenzaprine? Would we want to increase his oxycodone? would we initiate an SNRI like duloxetine and titrate up as tolerated, or start scheduled paroxicam and NSAID 20 milligrams once daily? What are we thinking? C, awesome. So C is the right answer. We know from the 2017 ACP clinical practice guideline that duloxetine was associated with a small improvement in pain intensity and function compared to placebo, Plus, his current complaints are fairly consistent with a diagnosis of depression, so we're kind of getting a little more bang for our buck by using an SNRI with analgesic activity. A isn't right because there was no difference in outcome when they were looking at the skeletal muscle relaxants compared to placebo. B is not necessarily incorrect if a six was not his goal so we don't know what his goal is maybe his goal is a four and that six is really affecting his function if that were the case i'd say okay it might make sense to to increase the dose of the opioid but that really wasn't his primary complaint here and then finally d would not be appropriate due to his history of the recent serious gi bleed case number two is that of a 59-year-old female with chronic pain secondary to cervical post-laminectomy syndrome. She's tried multiple opioids, including morphine, oxycodone, and fentanyl, and failed to achieve a return to her activities of daily living. She's currently using an average of 100 milligrams of oral hydromorphone daily. And methadone is brought up during her discussion with you today in clinic. So what are some things that must be carefully considered before initiating methadone? Would we review all of her medications, including over-the-counter products and complementary alternative medications, looking for potential drug interactions? Would we obtain a baseline EKG since she has none on file? Would we use those published conversion charts that we discussed in order to safely calculate her initial dose of methadone? Or D, would we do all of these things? D, awesome. Our third case, which will likely be our last, is a 66-year-old male with chronic arthritis pain in his bilateral knees, but was deemed to not be an appropriate candidate for knee arthroplasty. His current medications include morphine extended release 60 milligrams every eight hours, oxycodone 15 milligrams every four hours as needed for severe pain, and he is also using an average of three doses daily, and then phenytoin, which he's taking for seizure disorder. So for the past month, he's been using all of his PRN and scheduled opioids and states the pill burden is really affecting his quality of life, and he'd like to be converted to a single opioid. Other pertinent medical history includes stage four heart failure and a history of cabbage. So, what options are appropriate for better pain control? Would we convert his morphine extended release to oxycodone extended release, 80 Q12, and continue his current oxycodone 15 for breakthrough? Start an NSAID like diclofenac, 100 milligrams, twice daily offer bilateral knee intraarticular injections with a steroid like Triamcinolone? Or would we start Tramadol 100 milligrams every four hours scheduled in addition to the current opioids? And I certainly hope no one's picking D. A, that's right, awesome. And with that, I'm going, oh, I have 10 more minutes? Okay, we can do the fourth case. Okay, so our final case is a 29-year-old female who has chronic low back pain and is rather somnolent while talking with her. She rates her pain today as an 8 out of 10 on a 0 to 10 scale, which is her baseline. She is requesting an increase in her opioid regimen. So her current medications include oxycodone extended release 30 milligrams Q12, Alprazolam or Xanax, two milligrams every eight hours as needed for anxiety, and she's using all of her available doses daily, and carisoprodol or Soma, 350 milligrams, four times daily around the clock. You also have access to her PDMP and recent urine drug screen. Her PDMP reveals multiple providers for opioids, and her urine drug screen was positive for methamphetamine, which is interesting because of her somnolence. Um, you would expect the opposite. But what are some appropriate options for this patient? Would we have a discussion with her about the importance of abstaining from illicit medications and reviewing your opioid agreement with her, referring her to a substance use disorder clinic, initiating a taper down on her opioid, or would we be doing all of these things? Awesome, yes, all of the above. So... Kind of, you know, to wrap up our two hours together, I'll say that one of the things I really like most about the field of pain management is that I truly believe that it's as much of an art as it is a science. So we have multiple evidence-based pharmacologic options for managing pain, but there are a number of patient-specific factors that we need to take into account as they can influence the likelihood of therapeutic response and, of course, the chances of toxicity. But by following some of these principles of rational pharmacotherapy, we can potentially mitigate some of the risk and hopefully increase our chances of successfully managing the patient's pain and thereby hopefully also improve their quality of life. So with that, I'd like to thank everyone for your attention over the past couple of hours and I hope you enjoy the rest of your time in Vegas and at Pain Week.